Hi guys, welcome to Jules and Phoebe, the weekly pop culture and social commentary podcast brought to you by yours truly, Jules and Phoebe. Hey Phoebe. Hey Jules, how are you? I'm really good. It's a beautiful day in London. It is. It's so hot. Oh my God. You have outdoor space in your place. I do not. So I'm very envious of you right now. Yeah, we have outdoor space, which is definitely a win. It's so nice to have a garden when the weather is just amazing. And I went for a walk around lunchtime and I'm like, this is perfect. Like you really feel like you're in LA right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. Everyone's just in a much better mood as well. Like, I mean, I know it's not over, but COVID is well and truly over as far as everyone's concerned. I don't think you should say the C word. I know. Because the stats for the UK are still so bad. So bad. Did you see The Economist this weekend? I don't know. My my husband sent just some data in terms of like where we are. I don't know if it came from The Economist or where it came from. It possibly did because the UK had like 450 deaths over the past week. Next highest or next on the list was France, who had 300 less deaths than us over the past week. And everybody else in Europe is in like double figures, but we're blazing a trail. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So we have more deaths in the UK per capita than the US. Jeez, that is a bad look, really, because I know people must be telling themselves at least it's not the US, but if we're worse per capita. They've just hidden it very well. Like it's a non-discussion. No one cares. It's so true. Oh, my God. I'm seeing people living their best lives, like social life wise. And I'm still like, no, thank you. I cannot hang out yet. I'm not. I'm not ready for that. I'm not prepared. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there are obviously some people that I want to see. Like I went to Surrey this weekend of one of my really good girlfriend's birthdays and it was so lovely. So I just feel like now if I am seeing you in this global pandemic, there has to be like a real level. Mm. I have to like really enjoy your company. Like I'm definitely not seeing people just to see them. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, for sure. And I kind of want the people that I see to be, I mean, I say the people that I see, I've actually not really seen anyone, but I want, if I was to see you, I really want to know that you're not seeing anybody else because like friend of mine was like, oh, do you want to go for dinner? And I was like, no, not yet. I'm well, not for dinner. That's too much. Like I'm socializing in open spaces. Mm, mm-hmm. I'm not going for dinner or going to the pub or stuff like that. Definitely not interested, but I am happy to meet up at the park mm. if you have a garden happy to come and yeah. hang out in the garden that for me is obviously not ideal but like that's not as bad as going inside into an yeah. enclosed space for a long period of time I'm sure I said this last week about going for breakfast and our waitress sneezing you like, went for breakfast we went for breakfast there was a pl- where in Crouch End places are opening up again so we went for breakfast last weekend was so buzzed like My husband and I are, we're not foodies because I don't think we're sophisticated enough to be foodies. We're just greedy. And so I was like, oh my God, I can't wait going out for breakfast. The meal was lovely. Were you you outside or inside? We were inside. Why would you do that? It was one of those things that once it had started, I felt like, oh no, like you can't backtrack. And I think that that's probably, I mean, that's 100% my own fault, but it's a component that hadn't really thought about where you're like, oh no, the awkwardness of saying, actually, I've changed my mind. We don't want a table. Anyway, the food was lovely, but it was very stressful being in close proximity with other people. And then when the waiter brought down our bill, he sneezed. And I honestly 
was just my husband and I were just staring at each other. And as soon as we left, I was like, I regret that so massively. Like I don't, I want to go home and have a shower straight away because I just feel so nervous. And obviously it's hay fever season. So, you know, I'm sure that that is why he was sneezing. However, it's not a comfortable situation to be in. (laughs) (laughs) What have you been up to? I definitely have not been inside a restaurant. That's for sure. Like many of you who are listening to the podcast, I've been watching Indian matchmaking. Culturally in India, there are two types of marriage. There is a marriage, Hmm. which is an arranged marriage. Okay. And then there is the love marriage. Right. So having an arranged marriage is not as popular as it was for this generation, but still it's not something that is incredibly shocking. Right. Okay. So one of our close friends had an arranged marriage. They brought the bio data for the females that they felt would be a good match for him. They met on like a Monday and then they went to get married on a Friday. Okay, so to clarify then, when we talk about arranged marriages, because I think sometimes like the, the westernized assumption can be like, it's your parents being like, oh, this would be a good fit. But there is actually like a bit of analysis put into who would be a good match. In the show, it's very much like, yes, this is what I'm looking for. Tall, slim, trim, fair, not too dark, from a good family, likes to travel from North India or from, you know, whichever region it is that they would like their partner to be from. Mm. For me, I absolutely love this show. And I think you have to watch the show okay, to understand why it's such an epic show. So it's difficult if you don't really have a reference point for it. But it's so the articles I've been reading so far make it even more interesting in the sense that it's such an enjoyable show. But then you do have what people say problematic because there's a lot of colorism. Right. Situation. But my kind of interpretation of that is it's not that Netflix has this problematic show. These are problematic aspects of Indian culture. Right, right, right. Well, I would argue problematic aspects of like matchmaking and dating anyway, because if you can go to someone with your list, no one is ever going to be like, well, honestly, I think I'm a solid five. So I would like to, you know, people always have a supermodel list of who they want to be with. See my auntie, who is the matchmaker. She is just an OG. So she's literally telling them, yes, but because you're divorced and you have a child, you know, you just don't have many options. Oh, you have, wow. less, you, have le- you have less options. She's brutal. No, but these are the facts. These are the facts. I was hanging out with my friends this weekend. And what we were talking about is, you know, the situation where friends hype you up mm. and friends make you like, yes, queen, yes, girl. But people don't actually tell you what you need to, to do to A, be pragmatic or just to like level up. Mm-hmm. And so... Yes, of course, like the auntie gave can be very traumatizing if, you know, that whole, oh, you've gained weight, oh, this, oh, that, like those things Mm -hmm. are problematic. But I also think it's good when somebody can say this is the lay of the land. If this is the goal, then this is what we need to do. So for this particular context, she was in her late 30s and she's a divorcee. And she's looking for someone from a Sikh background like her and and all of these things. And so I see my auntie was just saying that, it is going to be challenging for me to matchmake you given this mm-hmm. circumstance. Right. And she found a guy, American Sikh, who was also a divorcee. Okay. And, what and then now, well, she was open to it. But the, the thing with, okay. yeah, but the thing with this matchmaking is that it's family to family. Oh, okay. So when her father was looking at the profile, her dad was like, oh, 
he's a divorcee? Mm, okay, question mark. Said, where was his wife from? And then see my auntie says, oh, she was American. Dad said, no, no, no. Really? Not interested. Yes, dad said, not interested that his ex-wife was American. I need someone who is really committed to our culture. Wow. Who you've married before is also important. I don't want my daughter to make another mistake. No, no, no. And see my auntie was trying to challenge him, but he was like, nope. God, that's so funny. Like, super interesting. It's super interesting. And there's a, I mean, I've said before, I love like royal culture and things like that. And there's a, a royal blog that I read sometimes. And basically it was like an in-depth analysis of Kate Middleton. But one of the comments underneath had been like, basically creating the comparison with Meghan Markle, which is what always happens, yada, yada. And this person had commented and said, well, I actually agree. I would want a daughter-in-law like Kate who just comes in, doesn't rock the boat, respects my family's tradition. If my son ever married someone who had notions and like disrespected how we did things, Mm. I'm so angry. And I just thought it's such an interesting mentality because there's an aspect of honoring the culture, which obviously you would always want someone to do. You would want someone to be respectful of your family and the traditions, even if it's not the culture, because I don't think culture pertains in the same way to like just white Britain, if that makes sense. And I can't imagine being so dogmatic about, no, 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 no. I definitely don't want someone who's going to come in with their own cultural heritage that they think they should honor. Yeah, but people do it in a more, um, I think that it does happen here. And I think it's a lot more subversive. Like Mm -hmm. somebody won't be explicit. Like you had one of the mums saying, if my house, because in the Indian culture, when you get married, the girl moves to the husband's family home. Wow, okay. And the mum was saying, it's my house, it's my rules. I love my first daughter-in-law. She's great. She gets it. And I'm looking for a wife for my second son who also gets it. So that's definitely challenging from a British perspective. But I feel that people do the same thing in a sense that, you know, you marry into these families and they bully you. They mm-hmm. undermine you. Yeah. They treat you badly because you have a different culture. They make fun of you if you don't drink. They make fun of you if you're a different religion. Yes. And I, I don't feel like this country is particularly flexible no, on no. different cultures, especially I, I, in, I in marriage. You. I agree with you. I meant it more in the sense of like, there have been times where, because as an, as an Irish woman, I think that there are things that like Irish language, Irish music, Irish dancing, for example. And there have been like members of my husband's family who will say things. It was a couple of years ago when the Pope was visiting Ireland And obviously, like there had been a ceremony for that and there was Irish dancing in the ceremony. And a member of my husband's family was like, of fucking course, they're Irish dancing. And I was like, what else would they do? That's our cultural heritage. What kind of dancing would take place in the UK? What's English dancing? Is it like May flag or something like that or Maypole? And I just thought it's such a strange flex to be like, huh, how pathetic that they've got a cultural dance or they've got a cultural tradition. So I agree with you. I do think that there is that cultural divide. Like my husband and I love spending time with each other, but we also really value our time with our separate groups of friends. And a couple of years ago, I bought him flights to go and visit his brother in Spain as a birthday present. And you would swear I had served him with divorce papers. Like he was so excited. I was like, go enjoy a weekend with your sibling who you never really get to see on a one-on-one basis. People were talking about it behind my back saying how weird, how weird that she didn't want to spend his birthday with him. That's just not what we do. 
And so I feel like those things have the opposite of the desired effect, because if you are so dogmatic about them, people don't feel like, oh my gosh, I certainly won't make that mistake again. I really want to hold, I should have given up my own kind of free will, for want of a better word, to just put myself into the wife box. Exactly. And, and and what they were saying in the show is like, oh, the woman has to be more flexible. The woman has to be more accommodating. So personally, for me, I think it's a great show, some really interesting personalities. And you just learn so much about the matchmaking from not just the Indian context, but then also like the Indian diaspora context. Mm-hmm. So I found that fascinating. I will say what I liked about the show that perhaps people don't consider in like a modern dating society, I definitely like the idea of just having visibility on people's family Mm -hmm. and like the families coming together because for me I would say one of the best things about you know my husband is his family Mm. and just having a great family who are supportive and who accept you and people think that marriage is like two individuals but the family and the support around you plays such a big role in your marriage and so what I appreciate about you know, the matchmaking is the goal of two families. Yes, absolutely. I think coming the, together, that, that can be lost sometimes. Yes, I agree. And I take your point on that fully. I think that it's like striking a balance for me, at least of it's those two families, but it's also an acknowledgement of, well, you'll obviously carve out some of your own traditions and some of the things that you you do and you don't do that you may or may not do with your own children. Like there's a dilution and there's a forging of your own path as well. It just depends because if your family, like if you work for your family business, if you live in your family home, Mm. if you're a dependent essentially of your family, but you just have a husband or you just have a wife, that's what creates those pyrodynamics where your family have more say. And I think that can happen everywhere. Like if your parents are paying your mortgage in your marital home, Yes, this causes issues everywhere. So I completely agree where it's like, yes, it's great to have the family support, but you need to still put your partner first. I could really do a separate podcast on this show. (laughs) This weekend, one of my girlfriends said, oh, I'm just looking for someone that loves me for me. I was like, that's not marriage. Marriage isn't someone sitting there and loving you for you. (laughs) There is a level of work that is required. And one of the ladies on the show says, I don't think there's any work I need to do on myself to make myself a better partner for anyone else. Which is so wild, because if that were the case, then you would have a partner. Oh, you'd have a partner, girl. Exactly. Not that you're problematic if you don't have one. But more importantly, it's like, obviously, that there's like a two way street, because you need to be able to look at yourself and be like, oh, I've learned or I've grown since that relationship. I've learned or grown since this one. So the idea that it would just be like, yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just sitting here. I'm just chilling out pretty much perfect. Like, yeah. Even in terms of friendships and relationships in that respect, we are constantly growing and evolving and learning. So how could you not be in a romantic capacity as well? Exactly. And the key thing that Seema auntie says is that marriage is compromise. Mm-hmm. You have to be flexible. And so I think the overarching message of the show is something I agree with. If you're watching this show, guys, holler at me <laughs> on Instagram. Okay. Me and my friend, Shweta, we have been talking about this show all day, all day yesterday. And I'm trying to convert more people that I could discuss this with because it's very fascinating. And one of the things that fascinates me is that even though we are evolving, even though there are more progressive values and society is changing people still fall into wanting 
a traditional relationship. People still want a marriage, but they want it with a twist. The thing is, the very dynamics of marriage have changed since our parents' generation anyway. And it's just going to continue to evolve. Like a couple of generations ago, I would have just gotten married and that would have been it. Like I wouldn't have been necessarily working anymore. And there was someone who was, you know, really casting aspersions on my marriage and my relationship recently. And I said to my husband, I don't even understand it. When she got married, she wasn't even allowed to have a credit card without her husband's permission. And yet she thinks it's weird that I would go on a holiday with my girlfriends. Just blows my mind that people get fixated on this period of time. Mm -hmm. That they're like, yeah, well, when we did it, this is how we did it. Exactly. Okay. I, completely, I completely agree. So I just want to gossip about this show because I think it's sick. And I just love the idea that people are, I guess, taking in an institution and trying to forge their own way. Mm. But yeah, also super excited about our podcast guest today. So today on the podcast, we have got Manny Avola, physiotherapist, running coach, founder of Cultural Health Club, London Select, joining us. So I know Manny randomly when I was more into my running we had some overlap with the running groups that we ran with but obviously I always think that London is super big and anonymous and you never run into anyone and you never have overlap with other people so Juliet maybe you want to say how you met Manny because I do think this is really kind of funny and random how about Manny you say how we met oh <laughs> I think you bring life to the story <laughs> You might not even oh. remember meeting you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember. <laughs> I just want to say thanks for having me on the podcast, first of all. And it's been a whirlwind of a few months for everybody, but I have kind of used the time to be as useful as possible and help to open up and meet as many people as possible. And London Select is a running collective, running group that meets in central London. And we specifically look to promote and galvanize the Black community to run. So we were running in Hyde Park. And as we were running, somebody just ran up to us and said, wait, wait, what's going on? What's you guys, hold on, hold on, wait, wait, who, who are you guys? Where are you going? Oh my God. <laughs> and it was Jules and Jules was like, there's so many, there's so many of you guys. Like, it's great. Where'd where you meet? Like, I, where'd you meet? Like, where's, where are you going? What, like, when, am, when are you meeting next? Right, I'll be there. And oh my Jules God, that like, is hilarious, Jules. Jules was like number one team member from the get-go. So yeah, it was great. It was, and then that was the kind of thing that I could see happening and it mm. happens quite a lot because we know the consistent narrative of what we see when a group of people are running. So mm. having that difference in terms of a larger cohort of black people running is just powerful. And I think it really encourages other people to feel like they can do it. I get the sense that a lot of the people within the group who come would not be coming unless we specifically said we want to promote the black community running. So one of our tiles on the Instagram is I never see other black people running, which right. was always my thought. And Namir, one of the guys who runs the Instagram, it was always his thought. So we're just trying to tap into and basically change the narrative through physical expression. That's our tagline. How long has it been going for then? Or is this something that's been like, you had been ruminating on it for a while before you pulled the trigger or was there a particular catalyst? This is about a two and a half year old thought process. So yeah, right, it's okay. long, there's been quite a lot of kind of like forwards and backwards of should I do it now or I'll wait, right. should I do it now or I'll wait. I think the 
catalyst for all of it was obviously the kind of uprising of the Black Lives Matter movement and the George Floyd death. And there was a lot of statistics going around and things that I thought of. And I think I just wanted to be a part of something that could hopefully influence a community and improve the perspective of the community because we know endurance running is not seen as something that ethnic minority people do um, Mm -hmm. especially black people so well if you're from east africa it's seen as something that black people do as a professional i think yes but i mean i think Um, there's this big divide once you're not a professional you know for instance if i turn up to races because for some reason i've been running for a few years i'm suddenly seen as a professional because right. there are no people around my age who could do it recreationally. It's almost like, well, you must be a professional. Like You're not allowed to be an amateur. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I w- um, and that's interesting you bring that up because I was interested in that idea as well because I think that you're right. I think that there is almost like there's like a fetishization of it where it's like if you're black and you're running – you must be really fast. Yeah. And obviously separate to that, I know that you actually are really fast and we will get to that in a while. But do you feel like that plays an important role with London Select as well, right? That it's a freedom to not have to be performative in that running. It's just a group of people getting the miles in. Yeah, I've been a big advocate of performance simply because I worked in sport for a long time as a physiotherapist. So performance has always been a cornerstone and quite an integral part of the way I I live my life. But I think there's an element of like, there's that saying, um, Bob Marley says, once you stop racing, you start living. There's like a saying of like not trying to always constantly be in a race to try and get somewhere quickly or to try and do something as quickly or as efficiently as possible and just trying to enjoy the journey. So I think my mind is involved. And with that evolution, I've thought about how I can share the insight of the things that I've kind of experienced. And I definitely think that it's about connecting people, London Select. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a case of, yeah, it's just enjoying the journey and enjoying the connections that you make on the day. Yeah, that makes sense. And so Jules is someone who then in the meeting of this group and then the running of this group, what does that feel like to you as someone to be joining a dynamic like that because crew culture is such a huge movement, right? And we see different running groups crop up throughout London. But as you said, Manny, like this is something that's got something quite important at its core that is more than just running. I mean, I think for me, I'm similar to everyone else who's black and running in the sense that you're typically running by yourself. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, let me do my 100K challenge like the Nike challenge but then I'm just doing that by myself Mm -hmm. and it adds a completely different dimension when you're able to achieve these things within a group and one of the things that Manny does like let's say we are running as a group he's always tried to encourage us to stick together and he's like you will actually improve if you're able to stick together and get through x amount as a team right and you'll see when we're running that Maybe because it's early days, but a lot of us are just not really used to that dynamic. And I think that that just reflects sort of how we are in society where we're literally most of the time, whatever goal we set, having to achieve those things by ourselves. Mm -hmm. But then for me, it's just so motivating to get to know a group of people that I probably would have never met. Yeah, of course. I don't think I would have met anyone in the group outside of the running group so it's super exciting to meet people who are just so interesting who are so open so that's sort of been the benefit for me especially during this whole COVID-19 situation 
So it's like, because we start running, it's 8 a.m. on Saturday. Well, nice and early. Get it out of the way. <laughs> yeah, it's super early on Saturday. And my Saturdays are really busy because mm-hmm. I do the running in the morning and then I have French. And then, so it's super busy. It's a huge commitment. But mm-hmm. then I'll think about like Manny coming through the positivity. So I'm like, okay, <laughs> I need to go and get that. And that's yeah. why we were super excited to have you on our podcast because we were like, you just have this amazing energy. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. No, no, you really do. Like you have this amazing energy. It's so encouraging. And even when one of the first sessions I joined and then you were saying how it's really important to attach a goal to your running. And so that month, so June, I had no goals. And then for July, I had Manny's voice in my head. And I'm like, okay, Jules, another 100K. <laughs> Challenge this month because you need to have a goal around it. And now, two weeks into the 100K, I've done 70K. What? Yeah, that's yeah. that. Good guy. Right? Yeah. So Amazing. and I think I think that's the value of just being part of a group. Yeah. And I've I've not experienced that before. Yeah. And so Manny, when then like you said, it's been two and a half years and BLM, the kind of the current uprising, as you said, it's been the catalyst. But did you feel a bit like, okay, well, what does the definitive trigger look like on this? Do I just show up in Hyde Park on Saturday at eight? and let word spread or was it a very like okay this is how I'm going to use social media because I feel like what you and Juliet have both said there and certainly about moving as a team you've already made the obvious connection that that's a metaphor for life so was it very like all right it's time to be out of my comfort zone be a bit vulnerable with this and know that no one might show up or were you like no I know people are crying out for this so yeah I mean I think I've always been one to like take a chance. I think mm-hmm. the catalyst was probably that I needed to do something because of what had happened rather than like sit there and think there's only 10% of the population who are black or ethnic minorities who might run in a race. So if you sign mm-hmm. up for any race, that race will probably be about 10% of people if that will sign up. And Is London, that the UK or that's, uh, everywhere? Where's that stat from? That's UK wide generally you'll find that long distance runners, it will probably be about 10% mm-hmm. so in terms of all the clubs or it's 10% or below. And I just thought the thing about a time when we're kind of opening our eyes to a lot of the disparities, especially the health disparities, being a physiotherapist, you know, health promotion is important professionally, but also I was just like, I think it's going to be fun. And mm-hmm. I think like, I'm going to enjoy it. And like yeah. we have our music on a Saturday, we turn up with our speaker, meet no. Hyde Park. And I just thought you've got to take a chance. And mm-hmm. you know, one person comes, if two people came, I'd be the same Manny. So I think there's an element of like, I risked it at that time because I felt it was the most important thing to do at that time to mm-hmm. make a change. And I've always been one that likes to lead. So I think from a young age, I quite liked being football captain, rugby captain, all that kind of stuff. And I'm in my element when I've got a group of people, you know, (laughs) like I kind of enjoy the fact that people may be relying on me, I think. Mm -hmm. I think I like pushing people to try and achieve. And Jules, that's amazing, the 70K. That's what I'm talking about, London Select, bringing people (laughs) out here, getting those miles, and that's what I'm talking about. So, yeah, things like that, like that achievement for me is testament to being able to build that bond. And that's good. That's what life's about, like building those Mm -hmm. bonds, helping somebody get closer to where they want to be or achieve what they want to achieve. And I think some people can be like trying to take credit for it. But actually, it's like a reciprocal process that makes me feel great and it makes Jules feel better because she's now like, 
I can achieve more in a month. I'm healthier. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. Like we've been going for 11 weeks and we're having this mm-hmm. effect. So in three, four years, like what's it? Going oh, for to? sure. Yeah. I have a question around sort of when you talk about helping others achieve your goals or their goals, I've heard word on the street is that you've achieved some amazing goals <laughs> when it comes to running. You have a sub three hour marathon. So you are a professional. No, not yet. I've got so my, my goal. Isn't is that like, professional? No. That's the elite part of the race. No, the elite part's actually like 230 something, 232, I think. You get paid or, or you get invited to go to the race. Um, your time. So I'm at two hours and 50 minutes at the moment. That's so amazing. I did. I finished, I finished 600th in London last year. Which is wow. Out of the non-elites, which is, which is amazing. That's amazing. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was pretty incredible. But I have my sights on breaking basically a really heady goal. So it's two hours and 19 minutes and you get an England vest if you run that time. Wow. Um, and the reason why is because the person I work with in terms of coaching and stuff is just given me that ability to feel like it's something that I can achieve. And I've run a half marathon in one hour and 16 minutes. So that basically correlates to about two hours and 35, 40 minutes. So I'm getting faster and getting closer. And I think it's something that a lot of non-ethnic minority men actually achieve, but we may not hear about it. But mm. I don't think there's ever been a minority man to achieve that for wow. at that level. Really? Yeah, I'm not sure there has. Obviously, Mo Farah is a completely different level. This is like a this is like just before you get into the Mo Farahs and all that kind of stuff. And you'll be probably in the top 50 marathon runners in England. So this is so interesting. So when you look at Team GB, there is, and I'd love to know your perspective on it, but when you look at Team GB in terms of winning medals at the Olympics, there is a high correlation between the medals that you win and whether you're privately educated or not. Oh, wow. Oh, really? Yeah, I think it's literally something like 90% of the people that win medals are privately educated and within sports that require that type of investment. So the UK is really good at the equestrian sports, rowing, all of these things require significant investment. And then there was, and I can't remember his name, the sportsman, he wrote an article, I think it was in the FT or something like that. And he was saying that I was able to get a scholarship at a really elite public school because my dad worked at that school. And he said, my sister had an equal athletic ability to me, but she went to a grammar school. And because she went to the grammar school, there were no fields. So in terms of like running and like just building up her athleticism, she didn't have the same opportunities that he did being in this public school with all the grounds and and everything available to him. And guys, look into it. That's why when the Olympics were in London, there was a lot of this information like coming out. And so when you think about some of the barriers that people have to, let's say, is it called elite amateur running I don't know if you've got some insight yeah socioeconomic position is a huge influence because a lot of the time you may or may not get funding so the funding circles and streams are very small can you take a step back and just explain what that is because I don't think all of our listeners will understand kind of like the politics or the economics yeah of running yeah so first of all the politics are a lot of long distance runners are white males and a lot of sprinter runners are black and similar with the coaching so the coaching and the runners so there's a definite split now what i mean by socioeconomic position is obviously money to fund yourself while you're training so you have to pay 
for your food, your rent, all those things without having any funding from UK Athletics or a sponsor. Wow. So those first few years can be extremely difficult because until you break through and run a national standard time, so you have to run a fastest time for probably with each event, it would be the top four to five people. And even if you are in the top four or five, it's about the consistency that you can run that fast time. And if you are consistent enough and they feel that you're enough of a prospect, they will invest in you. The other thing is if you get injured, UK Athletics, athletics, sorry. Yeah, UK Athletics will invest in you. The other thing is if you get injured, that can have an impact on investment or funding. It's very split politically and it can be a very difficult journey getting Mm -hmm. through to just to a GB position and GB vest or UK athletics funding. It's very tough. Regardless of the sport type, you need to be able to have significant capital or significant financial independence behind you so that you can just be like, yeah, I just, I train full time and that's just what I do. And so I wonder, is it also fair to say that there's a huge knowledge barrier there? Because I can imagine if you're going to like the right schools that Juliet's mentioned already, there are people who are going to be like, oh, you know what, let's put in for this funding. Let's go down this avenue. But even you knowing that you've got to be in the top four or five in X amount of races, you've got to maintain that average. That's just information that you probably had to work quite hard to come by as opposed to that just being readily and freely available. So imagine that that's another hurdle as well, right? Yeah, I think the social navigation, right, of the the rules and the regulations, that can definitely be something that if you haven't got the right coach or the right people around you who have navigated what's going on within UK athletics and the hierarchy and who to speak to and which Mm -hmm. way to turn up to. So you are seen and you achieve one of the top four times I think that can definitely be a big influence as well but you know I personally I've spoken to a few athletes who are UK athletic athletes and it's quite a high pressure environment Mm. and sport is there's obviously going to be expectations to perform. How long were you running for you said you came to it a little bit later how long were you running for before you were like oh oh shit I'm really good at this or was it like pretty quick? Did at, someone else at the beginning? You? I thought I was really good, but like in a totally inflated way. So my first marathon, I ran like the first twenty-one miles in two hours and seventeen minutes or something ridiculous. So it was really fast. So yeah. I could have run a sub three-hour marathon, but I actually ended up taking nine attempts to do it because I felt that I was good and better, and I felt quite confident between the beginning of the race and about. 19 18 19 miles but the marathon is very very someone said the marathon will always break your heart mm, <laughs> just yeah. one of these things like even when you run a really fast time like last year when I ran London and Chicago so I ran Chicago on my birthday last year actually which was oh. hilarious people were like yo it's your birthday I'm like yeah <laughs> I've got some American friends they're like you're wild you just running your birthday I was like yeah it's good like, I can run the marathon in the morning and then go to the bar in the evening and don't worry about I don't need to worry about a run I don't need to worry about a run the next day do I just just I'll be fine a cheap night as well because exactly you are <laughs> <laughs> exactly so I think the thing about it is that running marathons for me I was probably quite good i think the genes as well being yeah ugandan east african just like jules (laughs) (laughs) so yeah i think the genes and i think there's an element of me where 
I played sport all my life. So when I was 16, I went to a college that I wanted to play professional football. So I went to this college, right. which was basically, you did some work. <laughs> you were in college at the beginning of the day. And in the afternoon, you played football, basically the whole afternoon, every day. So it was almost like being on a scholarship and you were paid to be there. So I did that and that was for two years. And so sport's been a real integral part of my life. So I think that's probably why I enjoy the marathon running so much because it's not different to anything I've probably done since I was 12 or 13. I, I just always, as part of a swimming club, I played rugby, I had like England trials at rugby. So yeah, I've played almost any sport. And like a high degree of talent in a lot of them as well. So yeah, I think I think a lot of it was some natural attributes. I think the thing I worked at the hardest would be football and to an extent rugby. Having to get to trials and play county level was very intense. And so I guess the thing for me is that sport is always going to be integral to my mental health. Obviously, you've got a background in sport, so you had a decent baseline fitness. Yeah. But not everybody has that. And then they yeah. also don't have the confidence. Yeah. So what would you recommend for our listeners who, you know, they're interested in sort of getting out there, running more or taking up sports, but they don't really have the confidence? Yeah, I think the key thing is to try and have um, like I've got this theory that everybody's got like a maturation phase or maturation day, like where they basically evolve and like they are now the person they expect to be when they start doing the sport. Because when you start a sport, you're like, I hate this or, um, you know, I'm not great at it. Or there's all these thoughts within your mind where you're trying each day to be so much better and almost trying to accelerate the process. Where I say to people now when I coach or when I work with people, let's talk about maturation date. So let's say on this date, you are going to be able to achieve something achievable. So, for instance, let's say on the 25th of August, you will be able to run 5k without walking and feel great after and not feel like you've sprinted and you know everything hurts your lungs were burning and recognize that exercise doesn't always have to hurt exercise can be you know if we were to talk about how hard an exercise can be you know 10 is the hardest zero is not hard at all exercise can be four five six out of ten effort rather than always thinking that if you don't work really really hard and push yourself you haven't exercised I think majority of the time when I exercise I try and do it without effort I try Mm -hmm. and do it so that I can actually function through the day Mm -hmm. so I think when you're new in a sport is finding those internal kind of barometers where you're understanding how far to push when to push why you're pushing and what the aim is and choosing a maturation day a day where you say okay on this day I'm going to achieve this target and feel good about it. That's the main thing. And so with that then, because the majority of our listeners tend to be, I think it's Ireland or London based. So for our listeners in London who are like, okay, well, listen, I'm going to get myself to the 5K point. I'm going to do what Manny said. I'm going to run 5K on the, by the 25th of August, and then I can come down to London Select. Would you say you don't need to be at that point? Or you can come down and join us anyway. What number are you running at on a Saturday morning? Are we at four, five, six level? Or will you be expected to push it up to seven, eight? No, we run together. So yeah, we aim to help 
everybody within the group. So it's always a case of everybody gets through the workout together. I don't want to like hijack the mission of London Select, but I do have a quick question Mm -hmm. because earlier in the podcast, we were talking about a new show on Netflix called Indian Matchmaking. Mm -hmm. And I see myself (laughs) as a matchmaker. I'm a matchmaker. (laughs) So for our listeners, what's going on with your situation? Do you need to be matchmade? Please send in your submissions. (laughs) We'll actually facilitate. (laughs) Manny, I can vouch for him. Phoebe and I can vouch for him. I will. Eligible. We've listened to him for half an hour on the podcast. (laughs) He's a nice guy, the genuine guy. Thank you guys. I appreciate it. He's super ambitious. I appreciate it. You might have you might have to schedule the date pretty far in advance because it sounds like you've already got very (laughs) but I got you. Busy man. Uh, But if anyone could make it work, I feel like Jules could. So we'll keep you all posted, but do send it. Listen, 2020 is one of those years. It's a wild year. So (laughs) It's a a wild year. Tell our eligible listeners where they can find you. So my Instagram is Manny, M-A-N-N-I underscore O. And yeah, just come and say hello and you'll find lots of work. Sorry. Slide into those DMs. (laughs) Or send me the bio data. Yeah. Because I'm the matchmaker. So send me your bio data and I can go. There you go. Manny, I thanks so like much I, for I joining like us. That show The Bachelor. Is this, this is. Oh, yeah. Is oh, that's got nothing on Jules. Guys, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much, Manny. And guys, make sure to check out London Select as well. You can find him on Instagram, M A N I underscore O. And if you've got any questions that you would like us to send on to him, you can reach us on Jules Phoebe as well. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye. Bye bye. Bye.